Welcome to our Agile Tales, where we share the various successes and trials we've encountered as we navigate corporate levels and political waters to transform the business to be adaptable to this forever changing world. We are embarking on a new discussion with Sally Alata, founder and CEO of Agility Health. Agility Health is a company that offers a leading measurement and continuous improvement platform designed to accelerate the enterprise business agility journey and make new ways of work a reality. In this podcast series, Salary counts how she used her knowledge and skills to create positive change for her homeland of Sudan. We're happy you're tuning in to learn more about leveraging transformation skills to rebuild nations on our Agile Tales. Hi, Sally. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on to our podcast, our Agile Tales. Welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Sally, I believe you have a story to share with us on how you use your business agility transformation skills to rebuild a nation. Listeners, yes, you heard it right. Transforming a nation. So sit back and let's hear Sally's Sudan story. I actually came to the United States as a political asylee. My father was part of the old regime before this dictator, and he was sentenced to death because he was a general in the previous. So he had to escape Sudan. And that's how I got political asylum and became a citizen of the United States. So I don't have a political background, but my father, I know that he left Sudan, he fled. He doesn't like the regime that's a dictator. While all this is happening, as if COVID wasn't enough, you know, watching TV and watching Facebook and everything, I started to see these women come out in the streets with all the young people and they were starting to scream and sing and chant about freedom, that they were done with the dictator who's been there for 30 years. So when I started to watch this, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is pretty cool. Like Sudan is rising up. It's like a revolution. You guys all saw the Arab Spring, right? When you just saw hundreds of thousands of people out in the street saying democracy, freedom, we're done with you. Same exact thing erupted in Sudan. And it just really wouldn't stop. And it was so female, you know, there was a lot of men as well, but I can't tell you how bold the women were in the street. They were just loud and bold and they just kept saying enough, we're done with this. And the pictures wouldn't stop coming. All of a sudden in the middle of one of the days, this big train came from a city called Atbara and people were sitting all over the train and there was song and there was music and it was a real revolution. Like you could tell this is not going to stop. And it kept going on day after day after day. And then they all decided to do what they call a sit-in. They just went to the military, the army headquarters, and they just sat there, thousands of them and said, we're not leaving until you're gone. And all sorts of stuff began to happen, of course. But because of the military being so adamant that they have to win, they tried to scare people away by, by doing a massacre. So they killed a lot of the citizens that were sitting out there. There was over 120 And it was brutal. And this is the kind of stuff that unfortunately, because there's WhatsApp, we used to get live. And so every day I woke up in the middle of this beautiful thing happening and COVID happening, we would start to get videos of what's happening on the streets of Sudan to those people that we were just watching. So that became very emotional for me because it was already too much with COVID, with the business struggling with Sudan, what could have been a wonderful story beginning to fall apart. And then in the middle of all that, my father passed away. My father lives with me here at home every day while the revolution was happening. I would show him my phone. Dad, look, it's happening. They're going to topple the dictator. And he couldn't speak. He had a stroke, but I could see it in his eyes that he was very happy and he would just like nod. And he passed away right before the massacre that happened. And so it was just a very emotional time. You know, and, and, and so I decided, what am I going to do? 
Like, I can't just keep watching this stuff. I, I have to do something. And, and the good news is that the military dictator did get outset and there was a new elected leader that came on board, which was amazing. And then unfortunately, last October, the military took over again. So this is kind of the end-to-end -end story of where we are right now. But what I want to show you, what I did is I just put together this little flip chart in this big post-it note, and I kind of put an idea of something called Sudan Next Gen. And I just put a video out there on YouTube around what I think we could do as the diaspora. People outside of the country are called the diaspora. And I was like, what could we in the diaspora do to help this country? Because we're all experts and there's been a brain drain. And then I went to the Congress and I was one of the speakers. I was one of the other speakers, but then my video had 1.2 million views, the talk that I gave, which is just about a 20 minute talk. And so then you guys are familiar with Al Jazeera, that's a news channel. So then like, hey, can you come talk to us about what you talked about there? And so I did that. And that one also had another 1 million views in that channel. And then all of a sudden I started a movement and I'm like, what, what, what? hold on, I wasn't, that's not what I signed up for. But all of a sudden there were lots of followers and lots of people that were saying, great, we love your vision. Now what, what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to move Sudan forward? And I found myself sitting in the middle of this, how are we going to move Sudan forward kind of conversation? I'm like, my background is agile and business agility and, and enterprise agility and outcome. That's me. Like I can, I can talk about that. But like transforming a country and transforming a nation, like that's not my background. So what am I going to do? So I really had to dig deep and say, okay, what do I know how to do? What do I know how to do? I know how to build platforms. I'm very good at building platforms that I was a software engineer. So let me start by building a platform. And this was an online platform, SudanNextGen.com that I built. And the first thing I said is, okay, all of you people that are contacting me that want to help Sudan, can you register yourselves? Can you register yourself almost like LinkedIn and tell Sudanese, the government that you are willing to to help them in all sectors. And we had actually over a thousand people filled out the initial form and then 500 of them built their profile. And so all of a sudden I found so many, I would say world-class experts around the world that were willing for free, you know, including scientists, doctors. I mean, I just can't even tell you the caliber that I found. And they were all saying, we are ready at no cost to help the government once the democratic government's on board. And then of course, as you can imagine, a gazillion people were sending me projects to help Sudan, development projects. We can do this. I have an idea for agriculture. I have an idea for healthcare. I have an idea to put solar panels, stuff that's beyond my understanding. So I said, guys, you're going to register your projects and you're going to pitch it. And then other people can either fund or help you. But I am not, I can't fund you. That's not what I, everybody's coming to me to fund. But I will create a platform where you can crowdsource these projects and be able to get funding and have others see you. So we built this product as well. And all of this, was happening in the middle of the massacre. When the massacre was happening on the ground and I did not know what to do and I mentally shut down from work, I basically just sat down and I hired two developers and I was working with them day and night on the platform. That was my only outlet to stop thinking and feeling what I was seeing on the ground. And my mother would ask me, what are you doing? Sudan's falling apart. And I said, nope, it's going to come back. This military will be toppled and they're going to need what I'm working on right now. I'm ahead of them right now, mother. That was my only survival mechanism is I kept saying, nope, this will pass. And when it passes, we need to be ready for developing the country. And that's what I'm going to focus on because there's nothing I can do to what's happening right now. Nothing that's happening is within my control. And I'm not going to sit here and cry. I'm going to develop something that's going to be useful for the future. So we also did this whole, you know, we took all of these experts and they went back to Sudan and 2,300 people were trained. We did our first agile workshop in Sudan and it made me cry because 
nobody really talked about Agile in Sudan and 300, 400 people came and they used post-it notes and sticky notes and they learned about backlog items and in progress and done. And I, for the first time I got to hear Agile being taught in Arabic and I was just super excited about that. We did a lot of e-learning training. I had lots of people record videos in Arabic to teach them Agile and everybody could watch it for free in Sudan. And then I finally had the honor of meeting the new prime minister that took over. He came to Washington DC and because of all the work that I had done, they reached out to me to organize the group of U.S. American Sudanese organizations. So it was very nice to meet him. This is something else I'm working on right now, which is Africa Next Gen, which is creating digital jobs for the youth in Africa. And like I mentioned to you, the civilian government is not there. That prime minister was taken away. The military is back again. So we continue to advocate for Sudan. My point behind all of this, as I conclude, is what you're going to realize in life is that sometimes you're dealt cards that you don't even realize that you wanted. They're just kind of in front of you. It's an opportunity to influence change. And it might be for a second, something that you think is beyond your expertise, beyond your control, beyond your understanding. But I wanted you to just see from this little story that I told you, and I'm not saying we made huge impact, but we made an impact. You know what I mean? We, we made an impact. But I'm not an expert in country level transformation. I don't know anything about the healthcare transformation. All, all those things, the infrastructure, I learned a ton. But all I did is I took it one step at a time. I could not plan ahead in this case, never planned ahead. I could never. But I'm always like, what's the next problem that we can solve? And what can we do? What's within our control? And the hardest thing was there's lots of volunteers that came in and then they left and then other volunteers that came in and left. So I realized that I have to have the stamina and be surrounded by people that will not stop and will not waver because they're just getting tired, especially when you're doing work that's nonprofit or work that's difficult. You have to figure out how are you going to stay persistent and resilient because people are going to come and go and that's okay. But you are going to have to be steady, Eddie, to keep things moving forward and sometimes disengage if you want to, but come back to it again. And this little thing here, she believed she could, so she did. And I also have it over here. I have it on my wall. It's the same thing. It says she believed she could, so she did. That was really important. This having the confidence that it's you're only going to be able to achieve it when you believe it, not the other way around. This whole, well, I got to see proof that it's going to work before. Nope, it's the other way. When you're dealing with big, hairy problems like that, you really have to believe that you can and begin to do different things before it actually happens. So that is my story that I wanted to share with you that hopefully inspires you to think about what's possible out there. And it has a mix of my personal and, you know, and this is always difficult for me to tell this whole story. So thank you very much. Wow. Thank you, Sally. In your story, you mentioned that the Sudanese women led the change, that they are very vocal and visible. Are there any patterns or lessons we can learn from the Sudanese women to help in today's business world? You know, they just inspired me. And I think a lot of people just make assumptions, especially women in Africa are not treated well and that they don't have an impact and they don't have a voice. And I will just say that they are strong and they are determined. And they were the ones that had even invoked the men and the younger boys to come out because they are the ones that said enough is enough. So I think the lesson learned is just sometimes us women have the empathy and the emotional courage to speak up and to not be afraid. And in multiple cases, that is very, very helpful, whether you're transforming a company 
whether you are dealing with some of the turmoil we even have here in the United States right now, or whether you're dealing with Sudan, right? Sometimes people having that emotion and saying, guys, this is not moving in the right direction and I'm not afraid. And I think they broke that fear. And that was the biggest, most beautiful thing to see is that their courage brought everybody else out with them. And they did it with music. They did it with chanting and songs. They did it with beauty and elegance. And it was wonderful to see. It's a beautiful sight. Wow. So I'm curious from the flip side, what can businesses do to drive actually more diverse voices in the workplace? We'll raise up the voice of women for sure is a good place to start, you know, building upon what we just said, but just know that, yeah, just don't, you know, don't underestimate the voices of people and and raise them up and, and give them positions of leadership and positions where their voice can be heard because the empathy, and I don't want to be sexist, you know, men have empathy as well, but we're just focusing here on the conversation around women, but women do have sometimes deep empathy. And I've I've been very lucky to work with a lot of transformation leaders that are women. And I've I've just found I mean, I can think of 10 of them immediately in my head. They care a lot about the change management, about how it's going to impact the people, about the right communication strategy. They are willing to speak up when things are not going well or not afraid about the position or the title. So there's a lot of value in that diversity and in that voice of females leading transformation, being part of it, or just being in positions of influence. I don't want to just say power because I don't like that word, but just being in positions of influence where they can actually lead change and make it happen. That's a really good suggestions for businesses. Now, when looking at the situations in Sudan, you already mentioned that you have no prior experience in politics or government reform. In fact, this is not what you're trying to do. So how do you know what to do to help? And was there an outcome that you had in mind specifically on how to help? Like I said in the story, it's with what are in the diaspora going to help? I mean, you, you, you start watching the videos, you see the women, you see the children, you see the older people out. You all of a sudden see thousands and then it becomes like hundreds of thousands of people in the street. I remember all of us when we saw the, the revolt that was happening in Egypt. You guys remember the Arab Spring and the rise? I mean, all of us were glued to our TVs because we saw the thousands of people sitting in that central area. It's the same thing that was happening in Sudan. Obviously, it wasn't hitting CNN here, but it was massive. And so what, what happens is that you're you're a regular human being, you're watching something, you're following it, and you're starting to feel emotion and you're starting to feel a connection to it, right? That's kind of how it starts. And, and first you're just an observer, but then you get to a point where you're saying, what am I going to do to help this? Like, this is personal to me, whether it's your community, whether it's what's happening in our government, within our society, there's something that you're following. I, I didn't even know I was going to be an advocate for Sudan. Yes, I'm from Sudan. Um, I was born there, but I wasn't raised there. I left when I was four. You know, so this is not like Sally came here to high school from Sudan. I lived in other countries, but seeing their faces and seeing what was going on and seeing their courage and, and request for freedom invoked something in me, invoked emotion, invoked honestly a call to do something. So that was step number one. Number two is I put up a flip chart and we brainstormed around our kitchen table literally what could the diaspora do? What could Sudanese around the world? Because the problem for me was, I don't think Sudan, after this revolution succeeds, can move forward without some of us that have left the country for many, many years helping. So I kind of zoomed into that idea of what would the diaspora do to help. And I just wrote down some ideas of we experts in the diaspora call to action. We want you to help Sudan you are in all different fields and we want to start registering you and you can begin to come up with ideas for how to leapfrog this country forward. I basically assumed fast forward to the revolution succeeds. 
you know, I'm, I can't do anything with the current revolution, you know, and what they're doing other than cheer them on. But what I can do is prepare us, the experts to provide our time, energy, and ideas for what, because I know in my field, I'm an agilist, that if I had the chance, I would immediately coach and guide the government and all of the large agencies or institutions to use agile and agility, right? I would absolutely tell them to not, you know, follow the old traditional way and I would leapfrog them forward. So thinking about, I know how to do that myself, I wonder what other, you know, experts that are Sudanese around the world could do for Sudan. So that was just, I just did a video. I did a video and I put it out there and I said, hey, call to action. Are you anybody else with me here um, that wants to help? And then it just generated a whole bunch of over, I think, 2000 people registered. But then it got like hundreds of thousands of views. And then that's where it all began. So I didn't have a plan. I just had an idea and I executed on it. And like we, you know, I teach this obviously in, in the agility world, test it, nail it, scale it. I was just testing the idea. I didn't really have a plan yet. And then, you know, you had to figure out, well, how am I going to nail this thing? And then, you know, how do you really scale it? And then of course, the more people that got involved, the more the ideas became clearer of the next step. Not necessarily what we're going to do two years from now, but what's the next most important thing we could do to make an impact. That's very, very helpful. And what did you personally end up doing to help other than putting a flip chart, gathering people and, and stuff? Yeah. Step number one was when we saw the amount of people that actually came in and got registered. So you guys know my background, you know, agility health, right? I build platforms. I'm a very data-oriented person and agility health is a platform for measuring and data. So I immediately thought I'm going to be overwhelmed with data. And I think that there's a lot of data that needs to be tracked. So I built sudannextgen.com. I hired developers in India and I created almost like a LinkedIn but for Sudan, where instead of people filling out a Google form, which is what we were doing, experts could register themselves and create a profile and actually write down how they wanted to help Sudan, but they could do that on their own. And then people that are looking for experts could filter and find them easily. So you can now go to sudannextin.com, click on experts, and you can filter by expertise, by country, by domain. I mean, we got people that are in chemistry, people that are in economy, people that are in healthcare doctors. It was everything you could imagine. I found, I mean, I have now been connected to people. There's a gentleman that works here at the USDA and he's invented a new way of breeding wheat, like high performing, high quality wheat for the US government. He's like, I will help Sudan, you know, produce better wheat. So all of a sudden, all these really amazing people registered in the platform. And then soon after that, they all started to send me their projects. So then I, I had to create another part of the platform where you can register your idea, your initiative of how to transform Sudan. And you can tag it by the 12 different disciplines and goals from the World Health Organizations. And for transforming a country, there's different sectors. I can't remember the name of it now, but some of it could be food security. Some of it could be reducing poverty. So we had them create those projects, tag them the right way by what sector they are going to help so that the government could find them. Again, what I was doing is pre-planning. You know, people were thinking I'm crazy. What am I doing? Like the government hasn't fallen yet. But I just had this strong belief that it was going to fall and that the people were going to rise and, and stand up and win, you know, and that when they do, we, the diaspora, would be ready with our ideas and our expertise to help them. So the platform was the first thing I did. How, how do you have the guts to even step out and be bold and not be afraid to try something you've never done before and, and be the change agent. You know, that's something that I got from my mother. I think I mentioned it a little bit in my um, video, but my mom, and I didn't even know that this was valuable until I grew up, but my mom has raised me to not be afraid and to always 
not have ego, but be confident and not be afraid of trying new things. So, and, and I think now that I've grown up and I've started my own company and I just realized that fear has always been a blocker for people and that I don't have fear and not having fear of trying something or even failing, that doesn't come natural to people. Most people have fear of failure, which is why they won't try something new. I, for whatever reason, do not have that fear of failure and I'm willing to try something. I will absolutely contribute that to my mother and how she raised me. And, and that's a message I definitely have for the audience here is please raise your children with confidence and don't raise them with your own internal fears because you know sometimes we portray upon our children our own self-doubts you know of things that we don't know how to do well so we kind of make them feel that they can't do it either but that is that's what gave me the courage and that's what made me feel comfortable that plus my agile knowledge right knowing agility and and being able to be successful in the agile and, and business agility world and obviously I'm a CEO of my own company so knowing how to lead people and create visions and create strategies to move forward. Yeah, I had, I felt like I had the competence to at least move something forward. And I kept saying, well, if I don't do it, like who's going to do it? If it's, you know, you don't always want to wait for somebody else to do it. Like, why not me? Wow. I'm curious. So what you said, would that apply to the senior leaders? What can the senior leaders glean from you when they encounter situations that are fast changing and complex and they had no prior experience on how to deal with it? Or were they any, were there any tried and true solutions to fall back on? Yeah. I mean, the, the lessons there is, there's a little bit of courage needed. There's a little bit of experiment and learn. So you don't want to commit to something big. You want to try small things and, and learn from them quickly. And then, yeah, you want to be able to pivot, you know, learn and inspect and pivot quickly. And then you do need to build the right team and be humble enough to let them know, look, I, I don't have this whole thing figured out, but let's brainstorm. What's the problem we're trying to solve? What's the impact that we can do now? And what's the best way for us to get there and involve the team in the, in that ideation process? Because especially when it's really uncharted territory, more brains are better than one for sure. And we definitely, for this one, no one was the expert, right? None of us had transformed a country or tried to help a country before. So we're all like, well, I don't know. Well, we should probably do this. Well, we could do that. And so we would then be like, oh, let's try that. And then let's not put in three months of effort. Let's do a little bit of work and then people are resonating with it. So yeah. So just courage is definitely build the right team and then, you know, learn and experiment and, and pivot when needed. And in your story, there are lots of roadblocks, obstacles, and challenges. Yes. <laughs> How do you keep going? I mean, I know people say be persistent and resilient, but how? It really, it really has been hard. Dream exact time of the country trying to get rid of a dictator, which you can imagine how heavy that is. Then they had a flooding in Sudan and a lot of people died and there was just a lot of infrastructure damage. And then you had COVID hit and then you had this recession and there's the Russia war. And the problem is every single one of those major global crises has moved the attention away from Sudan. So when Sudan was first going through a revolution, like all eyes were on like a lot of, you know, France and Germany and the EU and and there was the Friends of Sudan and even the United States was trying to be helpful. There was a lot of attention on Sudan. So we were all very hopeful that things were going to move forward. And then one thing after the other reduces the tension, reduces morale, you know, hits you harder. And you're just like, man, how am I going to keep going? For me, it's the faces of those people that were on the street. And it's the constant thinking of the people. 
you always have to find your motivator. What is motivating me? And is it still worth it? And for me, there were two things, the people and their faces and knowing that I have to keep going to help them. And then my team, because my team viewed me as a leader. And if I lost the motivation, then they would be demotivated as well, of course. So I knew that if I didn't keep the stamina and, and, you know, the other thing is in this world that I'm talking about, there's a lot of volunteerism. This is not a job, right? It's just, it's a nonprofit. People come and go. And some people have energy and they'll join you while they have the energy and they'll do stuff and then they go. But you, the leader and your core team that's leading the pack cannot lose that energy and cannot go because if you go, then it's done. The vision is done. So those are the two things is the team and making sure that the momentum is happening. Um, and we did finally decide, let's just do what's within our capacity because all of us have full-time jobs and the big stuff we wanted to do, which was getting very hard to do under the new circumstances. What's the smallest slice of value we can still deliver, which is why we are still doing stuff until today, three years later, the slices are smaller, the impact still moving forward, we haven't stopped, and we are still making an impact. And that's what keeps us going. Wow, that's very encouraging. Because as you mentioned, the COVID happens, and it has been a few years now. And there's still a lot of other global events, just one keep piling on top of another. It's definitely a very complex world and definitely very fast changing. And your insights, it's really helpful for people to say, well, what are we going to do in, in a world like this? So it's very, very applicable in, uh, in today's yeah, VUCA on steroids, right? We talk about, you know, VUCA and what do you do in a world that is just so uncertain that this for us, especially trying to deal with the country, was like on steroids. It was constantly changing. Thank you for listening to part one of a two-part series with Sally Ilata. Please join us next time as we continue our conversation with Sally on leveraging transformation skills to rebuild nations on our Agile Tales. Thank you so much for listening to our Agile Tales. Feel free to ping us on ouragiletales.com.